listening to the Recovering Methodism Podcast, a global Methodist voice for navigating life and ministry in the 21st century, tackling the issues impacting the church, and recovering the distinctly Methodist practices to participate in the next great awakening. And now your hosts, David Cady and Caleb Spiker. Well, good morning, everyone. If you are catching this just as it is posted, or if you're getting it later in the day, good afternoon, good evening, or good night. Welcome to the Recovering Methodism Podcast. My name is Caleb Spiker. I am here with David Cady in the beautiful burg of Columbus, Ohio, in the studio here at Riverside Church on Zollinger Road. What's happening, Dave? Hey, it's a beautiful day in January, new year. New opportunities, and uh, good to be a part of the podcast today, and anxious to talk a little bit about our topic, our big idea, which is really about theodicy, yeah. um, suffering, evil, mm-hmm. uh, the problem of uh, you know, why do good people experience bad things? Uh, yeah. That's kind of the overarching question people have asked so many times. It's true. It's a, it's a question that we all have to deal with at some point. Whether we want to or not, that is for sure. Yeah. Well, what say you, Dave? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, um, as my mom would say, why not? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, it's an interesting question, and it's not really, a, I don't think it's a sound theological question, because who, who are the good people? Mm. Right, mm-hmm. Jesus. Jesus' response to the rich young ruler is, "Why do you call me good? God alone is good." So, but I understand the concept here is the idea that we struggle with the concept of people suffering when they don't deserve it. Yep. Um, when things don't seem fair, and uh, that's that's a real issue that we struggle with. And uh, I guess the overarching response to that has to begin with the, the fact that we live in a fallen world. Right, we're, we're fallen uh, creatures in a fallen world, and reality is bad things happen. Yep, and I think part of it is exacerbated um, in the 21st century in the West that, by and large, our lives are so ludicrously easy by historical and global standards that we can lull ourselves into a certain sense of entitlement about how our lives should go. Absolutely. I mean, we've coined the phrase first world problems, right? That's yeah. been a phrase that's been around for the past decade or so, and it's it's true. Um, but you're right. There's this expe- expectation that we have in the Western world uh, that things are going to go smoothly. You're going to you know, you get your education, you're going to raise your family, you're going to work hard, you're going to retire and live a long life and there won't be any problems. And the reality is no one's guaranteed that. Nope. Um, and so it's it's sometimes a, a shocking experience for folks when that American dream gets shattered mm. uh, unexpectedly. Um, and, I, and I would think that in other parts of the world that uh, this the opposite is true, that people have this re- realization that yeah, these things are going to happen in life. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that maybe we can chat about today is this concept of theodicy, uh, which is a theological term, which really describes the problem of evil. Um, did you ever happen, happen to take a class on theodicy when you were at United? I did. It was the late 80, late 90s, I should mm-hmm. say. Um, I don't know if you took one when you, if they offered it when you were there, if you got a chance to take it. Uh, if it was offered, I didn't take it. Okay. Um, really it's, it's, it's an opportunity to talk about the problem of evil. If God is all powerful and uh, all good Mm. and all knowing, then why didn't God do something about these things? Yeah. That's really the question, right? Um, it's a trilemma of issues that emerge as we talk about the realities of life and try to make sense of it in light of who we believe God to be. And I think biblically, you know, it has to take us to the book of Job. Mm-hmm. And, and you had mentioned earlier to me that you 
we're kind of working through the book of Job with your your family. Yeah. And uh, why don't you catch us up to speed on how Job fits into this conversation? Yeah, uh, what I do remember, um, I didn't take a theodicy class, but I did take a wisdom literature class. And uh, Tom Dozman used to talk about how um, the way wisdom literature is set up in the Old Testament, it's like, well, 90% of the time, Proverbs is true, right? Like, if you do what you're supposed to do, good things happen, and this is, you know, just the way the world is. Right. Um, you know, and 9% of the time, uh, Lamentations is true. And, you know, if you don't pay attention to what's going on, you're going to find yourself getting passed up and, you know, there'll be difficulty in your life. Right. And 1% of the time, and the uh, biblical authors were make sure made sure to include this book. It was written before either Proverbs or Lamentations. 1% of the time, bad stuff just happens. It does. There's nothing you can do about it. Right. Um, and Job is true in that, that case. Um, and, you know, for our, for our family, we've been... Uh, reading through it here in the new year. Um, and we're through chapter 14, I think. And the way Job is set up, it begins uh, with uh, a, an introduction to who Job is. He is this righteous man who has lived a charmed life, um, and he doesn't take it for granted, right? Like the writers want us, want us to be absolutely uh, sure. Um, like Job is so righteous and so upright that like his kids will throw a party and the next day he'll sacrifice in case they did something that dishonored God during this party. Right. Like in case. Just in right? case. Um, Covering his bases. And uh, basically the, the story goes that, that God is there with the, the heavenly assembly um, and the accuser shows up, the Satan, Satan. Right. Um, and he says, you know, where have you been? And we learn there that the only time somebody hurries in the Bible, it's, uh, it's the accuser who's hurrying around the world. Sure. Seeing what's going on. Um, and, uh, you know, basically this conversation ensues where, where, uh, the father and the accuser having this conversation around, um, whether or not people have, uh, have value and morals and whatever. And God essentially says, well, have you considered my servant Job? Yeah. And the accuser says, look, he doesn't really love you. He's not really obedient. You've just been really good to him. And God's like, I don't think that's the case. So the accuser's like, well, let me wreck his life and let's see what happens. And the father says, okay, you can wreck his life, but don't touch him. And there at the end of uh, chapter one, beginning of chapter two, his life falls apart. Sure. Right? All of his money goes away. All of his children are killed. He's left, um, he's left having his flock stolen, his children dead. It's just him and his wife. And, um, and the book of Job says that, that Job, you know, praises God in the midst of that. Yep. And and his wife's pretty helpful at this point, I believe, if I remember the story. Okay, why don't you just curse God and die? I mean, that's what she says. Well, the, <laughs> I, I I I can't remember if if that's uh, if she says that there um, at that point, or if if that's after his body gets the boils. It's all part of the process. So he's kind of yeah. scraping the boils with a broken shard of pottery, and it's kind of ugly, you know. Yeah. Kind of, uh, it's uncomfortable. Um, and eventually, he has three friends show up and. Um, they represent that that Proverbs tradition. It's like, look, Job, if bad things are happening, you've done something wrong. Sure. And Job's like, no, I haven't done something wrong. I think we have the wrong idea about this God. Yeah. Well, maybe circle back here real quick. The the friends show up and they don't say a word for a couple of days. A whole week. A whole week. Uh, yeah, they just was, sit there and, and mourn with him. And this is really a great, great example of pastoral ministry. It is. Right? A a until they start running their mouth a little bit. That's when it gets turned upside down. Yeah. Um, Job opens his mouth, and they start telling him what, what, what he should do, what's going on. Right. Um, Just and admit, they, admit what you did wrong. Yeah. Right? 
and they level accusations. And Job says, no, I didn't. Like, I, like God just isn't just. Um, and this goes on then for 30-some chapters um, until you finally get at the end of, of the book of Job. Uh, God shows up and says, hey, Job, were you there in the beginning? Will you be there in the end? Who are you to say what is good and bad? And that's the way the story ends. Yeah. <laughs> there's this, there's this uh, extended, we'll say, monologue that God finally responds to Job's complaints and accusations, those kind of things. Um, and I love it. <laughs> and at the same time, I hate it. It's very it, unsatisfying. Well, I hate it because it's not the answers. You know, I, everybody wants a clean, clear cut. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but that's not what we get there. Um, and I love it because it's it's God reminding Job, and by reminding Job, reminding all of us um, that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Uh, and while we often hyper focus on um, piddly little things in our life. And I'm not saying someone's suffering is, I'm not trying to diminish that, but oftentimes we lose perspective. Mm. And the end of Job is a, a recon, reconciling moment of perspective. Mm. And God is saying, um, were you there, right? When I created the foundations of the earth, were you there? Have you, you know, yeah. I, I love it, but at the same time, I hate it. Yeah. And I think that's the whole point. Well, it it forces the reader to make a decision. Am I going to trust what God says about himself uh -huh. and trust that somewhere in the machinations of uh, the pain and the suffering and the difficulty I'm going through, God sees a perspective that is bigger than mine and that what I interpret as bad in this moment is part of a bigger uh, project in bringing about a better outcome or not. Right. So as you probably remember last summer, a friend of mine passed away from pancreatic cancer. And if there's anybody in the world that didn't deserve what he went through, it's, it's, it, was, it was him. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I watched him wrestle with that for six months. And at the end, there was this piece of acceptance and resolution. Um, and I'd like to think that um, part of that was just the presence of, of God at work in his life and in his family's life and helping him to come to terms with the reality of it, believing that God has greater things in store hmm. than the things that we try to hold on to in this world. And um, now, if I remember, Job's story ends with some restitution, mm -hmm. right? He gets his property restored or doubled, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. And he, his family is, is rebuilt, mm -hmm. right? Um, I would have been happy if that didn't happen at the end. I mean, it, it almost seems to uh, uh, cheapen. The loss. Because it's like, yeah, you can have three kids and have them replaced with six kids, but you still lost the three. Right. right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I've, I have less, I have less emotional strife with the, you had 10 goats, now you have 20. Right. But the, well, you had three kids, now you have six. Isn't that better? It's like, well. It's, it's complicated. Yeah. It's really messy. And, and maybe it's supposed to be, right? Yeah. And so this concept of why do good things happen or bad things happen to good people, um, this problem of theodicy, this trilemma, if God is good and all-knowing and all-powerful, then why does he let these things happen? Um, I, I would have been happy with, well, happy is the wrong term, I would have been satisfied with God's response to Job at the end without the little narrative at the end with Job getting things restored. Yeah, That's just me. Yeah, it's um, it doesn't make it less messy. And that's the right word, I think, is messy. 
um, things get complicated real quick when it comes to these kind of conversations and these kinds of experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in my experience, um, in ministry and in life in general, the the beauty that I see in the midst of these kind of messy circumstances is when an individual or when a family comes to terms with the reality that they're in the hands of God. Mm. And yes, there's suffering, yes, there's pain, yes, there's grief, um, but God is in the midst of that with them, and the trust that God has something better in store sometime in the future gives us the hope that we need. Mm. And I remember raising that question in theodicy class, and uh, I believe the professor at the time um, suggested that I was holding on to the eschatological trump card. Mm. I'm like, well, I kind of am, I guess. Yeah, you know, I, someday God's going to make it all right again. He's going to bring justice. He's going to, you know, uh, restore what was what was lost. And uh, if I don't have that hope, then uh, I think, as Paul would say, we are to be pitied above all people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's the um, I, I think that is uh going back to a conversation we've had in the past, like like part of why um the the arguments of the universalists like ring so hollow. It's like, I'd rather have a just God that allows suffering in the world than one who um, is going to micromanage everything and, uh, and, and then say, well, you know, I was responsible for it all. We all get to come together at the end and it'll like, there's just something about that. That's very, uh, it feels very cheap. Right. Um, because you know, if, if, if it's true that God is just, um, which, you know, is something we believe to be true, then, uh, the idea of, um, you know, the, 11 million Jews killed during the Holocaust and Hitler all entering together and just, you know, without any sort of restoration, repentance, reconciliation right. happening. Right. I mean, it, it just, it's so ugly. Right. Um, I think that's, you know, for a later conversation, you know, part of the, um, the interesting work that's been done by our, Roman Catholic uh, brothers to think through what a post-death purgation would look like. <laughs> um, you know, as we want uh, God to be incredibly gracious um, and make a way when, you know, things are ugly and painful. I think um, I think there has to be balance in the grief that we experience in the midst of suffering, along with the hope of of God's promise to to bring justice and restoration to those who believe. Um, on one hand, we don't want to be over so so overwhelmed with our grief that we lose the hope, and on the other side of that, we don't want to be so full of hope that we don't. We, we negate the grief that people experience. Yeah. And so um, I think it's what First Thessalonians 4.13 where Paul says, don't grieve as the rest of the world grieves, which obviously he's not saying don't grieve. Yeah, it's a very different thing. He's saying don't grieve as the world grieves, as if you had no hope. Yeah. So there's this balance, this messy balance of grief and hope, which we see reflected in Job, and we see reflected in so many people's lives um, that we've been in ministry with uh, over the years, and so the book that we're going to we're going to look at, it's part of Caleb's library, is classic um, regarding grief. It's, it was written in what the fifties, I think. Sixty one. Sixty one. I knew it was late late fifties, early sixties. So sixty one. Um, so we're looking forward to talk a little more about this and how it might apply to this big idea conversation today of you know why to 
bad things happen to good people, the problem of theodicy, and how do we balance grief with hope. So let's, let's go to the library and pull that off and take a look at it. And now it's time for Caleb's Library. November 23rd, 1963. What happened that day? Well, I was not alive, um, but just thinking historically, uh, that would have been around Thanksgiving in 1963. And I know um, most of our U.S. historian type folks would say that's when JFK was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. And obviously took the, the headlines... For um, for appropriate reasons for for quite some time, but I I also believe my memory tells me that that was the same day that C.S. Lewis died. That's right. All right. So kind of I kind of interesting that uh, two uh, very different people from very different worlds um, uh, died on the very same day, and uh, that's one of those pieces of trivia that maybe a lot of folks didn't realize that Lewis died on the same day as JFK. Yeah, a lot of people didn't realize Lewis died because of the day he died on. Right. Because it got buried. Kind of reminds me of uh, late August of 1997 when um, Princess Diana and Mother Teresa died. Mm. I don't know if it was on the same day, but it was very at the same time. Yeah. And of course, Diana got all the headlines and, and Mother Teresa not so much. But it's just interesting to me how things work that, that way in history. So why do you mention this, this, this bit of trivia? Well, today's book... Um, is C.S. Lewis talking about grief. Uh, it's a book he wrote in the, the weeks following uh, the death of his wife. Um, they got published in 1961, the first time, um, actually under a pen name. Um, it was uh, published in 61 under the pen name N.W. Clerk. N.W. Clerk. A pseudonym, N- huh? Pseudonym pseudonymity. All right. And so that's yep. interesting in and of itself. Yep. Um, so this is a classic book, not very big book. It's just uh, based on like some of... pages. Based on some of uh, Lewis's own personal journals and responses to the grief that he experienced when his wife uh, passed in the, what, the late, mid to late 50s, probably? Mm-hmm. Late 50s. And if I, my, mem- my memory serves me right, was her name Joy? Yes. I thought it was. And so that's it's quite interesting that uh, he... Um, lost it, lost joy, mm-hmm. um, and that gets reflected in the book. So uh, you you mentioned that you had read this most recently. Yep. Um, so walk us through uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, grief observed. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting read because um, the the story goes that he essentially had you know half empty notebooks that he just started writing in. Um, like when he couldn't sleep and when he felt like he was going mad, um, and it's broken into four sections and, you know, the first section, yeah, it's, it's the incoherent ramblings of a madman. Um, and then the second section is very angry. And then right around the third section, he starts to sound like C.S. Lewis again. And in the fourth section, it's like, oh yeah, this, this, this reads like Lewis. It's it's fascinating. So he literally works through his grief, right? Yeah. Uh, whether it's denial or anger or, you know... All and in the, the fourth book, uh, there's a note. It's like, well, this is the last notebook I could find. I'm not going to buy another lo- notebook to keep this going, so I have to wrap it up here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't sound like it was intended to be a book in general, but someone came across his notes, and or maybe he did, and... Well, I mean, it would have been published when he was alive, but not under his name. Right, 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 right. So someone convinced him to get it out there in the public. But it's not your typical C.S. Lewis logical, um, you know. Not until the end. It's not mere Christianity. No. Um, but I think it's it's really it's really good to see um, such a uh, deep thinking Christian put to paper, pen to paper, on the reality of, of grief and what 
how that causes us to think and feel and believe in ways that perhaps we never have before. Yeah. And uh, Madeline uh, Langle uh, runs or wrote the uh, the preface to the book, um, and her comment was interesting. She said, "You know, I, uh, she said, you know, Jack and Joy only had a short time together before she died. I was married to my husband for forty years before he died, and we've had a very different experience." Oh, I'm sure. And, you know, she's very, you know, gentle. She's like, I'm, it's, this doesn't negate his experience, but it, it highlights that everyone's experience of grief is different. That's good. Um, I, I appreciate that. Like even, you know, there in the very, uh, the very first section. So a couple quotes that, um, I have, I was reminded of as I, as I looked at some of these quotes up, um, the first one is this, C.S. Lewis says, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe flesh that out a little bit about some of his thoughts and writings, uh, maybe earlier on in the book. Uh, what do you think he means when he says that grief feels so much like fear? Yeah, it's uh, it's mostly that unexpected what comes next. Because, um, you know, not having that exact quote in front of me, um, I, I think he goes on to say, not like terror, but like anxiety. Yeah, low-grade anxiety. That there is, um, that there's this knowledge that something more is coming and not know exactly what it is. And, um, you know, he, he uses the, uh, the image of, um, of having a leg amputated. Okay. You know, and it's like, oh, you know, it, it heals, right? Like it, it goes away and it heals. And, um, you know, it's an image he comes back to on a, a couple occasions. He's like, I thought it was healing. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but you know, it's that, that, uh, that not knowing when that, that scab will be opened up again. So this is a guy that I believe served and, and, or fought in world war one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where he met Tolkien, right. Or come out of coming out of world war one. Yeah. Um, and of course, was a spiritual leader in Great Britain during World War II. Mm-hmm. And yet, the personal experience of grief doesn't hit until later in life when he loses his wife. Mm-hmm. And he begins to reflect upon how it feels like fear. And I'm thinking, you went through some very scary times. And, and my point is this, it's possible for us, even especially as pastors, to go through some very... Um, challenging, difficult seasons in the life of a congregation or the life of a parishioner and not have us feel it personally. Mm-hmm. This is not happening to us. Yeah. Um, you know, we've been in emergency rooms. I, I've been present when people have been taken off life support. But it's, it's different when it's happening to someone you love um, or to you yourself. And it changes you. And I think it changed C.S. Lewis. Yeah, he um, so he has this this one section where he says, uh, "And I must surely admit that she would have forced me to admit in a few passes that if my house was a house of cards, the sooner it was knocked down, the better, and only suffering could do it. Mm. But the cosmic sadist and the eternal surgeon becomes an unnecessary hypothesis." The cosmic sadist and the eternal surgeon. Yeah, like so. So that that's a um, that's a uh, this sort of this sort of uh, wrestling match yeah. throughout the book. Like, is God yeah. a cosmic sadist or is he an eternal surgeon? Right. Does he, you know, allow for and even cause pain for the sake of pain because? what we understand to be good is not what God is, or is God this eternal surgeon who has the perspective to realize that that you cut in order to heal? Right. And in my experience, when you're in the midst of grief, the, the, the former is what you feel, that, okay, this is not fair, God mm-hmm. is punishing me. But when you go through it, and reflect upon it and surround yourself with people who help you through it, you begin to realize that, okay, God has done a work in me. 
Yeah. Right. So here's a quote um, that C.S. Lewis has in the book. He says, not that I think that I'm in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. Yeah. The conclusion I dread is not, quote, so there's no God after all, but, quote, so this is what God is really like. Yeah. And that's where we find ourselves when we go through seasons of, of grief and suffering. Um, you know, well, and, and I, th- I think it, it highlights um, why for some people a, a preferable answer to the question of why do bad things happen is simply just that, well, because the world is random. Because you don't want to uh, acknowledge that there could be an eternal, all-powerful being who would allow it. Well, sure. We want the easy answer, and the and the easy answer puts the blame somewhere else and mm-hmm. makes us a victim, right? And we have to work. We have to wrestle through that. Um, I was just, I'm looking up the quote that came to mind. We've talked about it in the past, um, where C.S. Lewis talks about how God whispers to us in our pleasures, mm-hmm. right? But he shouts to us in our pain, yep. and that suffering and pain become a megaphone to rouse a, a, a slumbering world. And basically what he's saying in such poetic language is that um, suffering will get our attention. Yeah, It'll... it'll It'll cause us to pray. It'll cause us to become, I was going to say great theologians, but not necessarily accurate theologians, mm-hmm. but it causes mm-hmm. us to think about God. Yep. Um, I'm sure you've seen that in your ministry. I've seen it in mine. Uh, we've seen it in our own lives as we've wrestled with um, the challenges that, that it, you know, what we, we go through. Um, how would you, um, what would you say to someone who's never read this book, um, First of all, would you recommend it? If you are willing to commit to reading the entire thing. No, that that sounds personal. Because, well, <laughs> you know, I often decent read things and don't read the whole thing. So yeah. tell me more about that. Yeah. Um, so with this... Uh, because this is not a logical argument, right. but this is a um, a chronological musing, it is more like reading a story than it is like reading a nonfiction book. Sure. Um, in the same way that if you stop reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when uh, Aslan is killed on the stone table you don't actually know what the book is about. Right. In the same way, if you read the first chapter or the first two chapters and stop reading A Grief Observed, you won't know what the book is about. Right. Um, so, I mean, luckily it's it's a pretty short read. It's, you know, 90-some pages. So. so so that's fascinating because I think that oftentimes um, people don't work through their grief. Mm. Just like not finishing the book, yeah. uh, they get stuck and uh, an aspect of grief sometimes for decades mm-hmm. and never work through it and don't find the 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 uh, what we'll just say the healing of the surgeon's cut um that perhaps is is part of that process so i appreciate i appreciate that I mean, can you imagine uh, waking up halfway through surgery and being like, "All right, doc, I'm done with this. Don't sew me back up well, sure, absolutely <laughs> right this hurts. I don't want to go through this anymore, yeah. Right, um, absolutely. So that's that's a good little metaphor for me to to think about reading someone not finishing the book. So your first advice is, yeah, it's a good book to read if you read it all. Yep. Okay. Um, what else would you say to someone who might consider taking a look at uh, a grief observed? Anything else you'd add to this? Um, I think I would, uh, you know just echo the words of uh, Langle in the, um, the prologue. It's like, understand everyone grieves differently. Yeah. Every process is differently. Do not read this as a manual for 
how to you know overcome grief. That's good. Um, because it's it's not that right. It's it is a look into the soul of a single person um, as they work through the grief of losing a spouse. That's helpful. And when we transition here in a moment to the toolbox and talk about uh, various aspects of ministry in a local church, um, especially with with the grieving, with folks who are grieving. And I might suggest that the majority of folks in our congregations are grieving, whether they know it or not, um, is the reality is, that is, is we're all in different places with that. And some are, are much more sensitive to those kind of things because it's fresh in their life. And some have... Um, are dealing with the scars of a wound that that healed inappropriately, mm-hmm. um, and so let's just let's just take a moment here, as we as we transition to the toolbox, to think about what that means for us as ministers of the gospel, to realize that this particular book that we're, we're talking about today is not a manual. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's really um, just what the title says. It's a grief observed. Um, so this is helpful. I appreciate the, the conversation around the book. It's a classic C.S. Lewis book, uh, very different than his other writings, um, whether it be Mere Christianity or Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia series. Um, and so, but it's, it's a really good contribution to, um, to the church. Mm-hmm. So, appreciate it. Now for some practical wisdom for church leaders. Let's open up the pastor's toolbox. Toolbox time. So Dave, did you get any any nice tools for Christmas? So I did. I bought myself some things that uh, I'm already put into use. I got a nice little uh, drill bit, screwdriver bit type of thing that I found on sale at Lowe's. Um, trying to think what else. I borrowed a nail gun um, and have been really doing some work around the house with a nail gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- tools are a good Christmas gift for me. I like it. Yeah. So uh, I saw a meme on the internet that said when... Uh, when a man becomes a dad, they're sorted into one of four houses, the DeWalt, Milwaukee, Ryobi, or Makita. <laughs> what uh, what house are you in? Well, I have a Milwaukee heated jacket, if that means anything to you. But you left off Craftsman, you left, left off Cobalt. There's all kinds of different tools out there. Those aren't power tool companies. Oh, come on. I mean, only if you're going to be a Lowe's exclusive guy for... Is there a place else to shop other than Lowe's? Oh, come on now. Come on now. Support your neighborhood hardware stores, friends. Sponsored by? (laughs) Sponsored by McAuliffe's Ace Hardware in Marysville, Ohio. Sponsored by uh, Starrett Brothers, Do It Best Hardware in Duncan Falls, Ohio. (laughs) Well, I bet they have a toolbox there we could buy. I... I guarantee. So let's open this toolbox for ministry, which is the third segment of our podcast. And each time we uh, we try to have some conversation around practicality uh, of uh, the, the topics we've been discussing. So we've been talking about suffering and grief. We looked at uh, C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. And it just makes sense that we talk a little bit about ministry with the grieving. Yeah. Uh, which is an interesting concept. So... Um, here, here's my take on this, Caleb. Uh, everybody's grieving, yep. whether they know it or not. So when you when you approach it like this, that all change is loss and all loss must be grieved, then everybody's grieving something. Mm-hmm. And well, that just puts things in perspective when you realize, okay, that's why that person's so grouchy all the time, mm. or mm-hmm. maybe that's what's you know causing this unusual behavior in their life. I've never seen this from them before. Yeah. Or maybe this is why I feel this way. Maybe I'm grieving, right? Yeah. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about ministry with the grieving. And um, 
I don't know, let's just start with preaching, because um, we do a lot of that. Um, any thoughts that you, you just bring to the conversation around how ministry with the grieving impacts our preaching? Yeah, I mean, I think especially about those times that um, that Sunday morning rolls around and there has been a uh, an, an event that marks an existential shift for everyone. Mm. Okay. Um, you know, the 9-11 type event. Sure. Um, you know, the uh, coming back from COVID type thing, right? Um, Ohio State losing to Michigan, third, uh, third year in a row. It's not, it's too early. Too man. early, got, too soon, I'm sorry. Hold on. By the way, congratulations, Washington Huskies, on your win tonight. Oh, we, sh- we can hope so, can't we? Gosh, I... I've never been a bigger Michael Penix Jr. fan in my life. <laughs> so existential type of cosmic um, shifting type of events, right? Yeah. I mean, I think those create acute situations that everyone's on the same page. Sure. But I think they should also clue us into the reality that um, it is it is a place where everyone is at some point. Sure. Because everyone's having existential events in their lives all the time. Sure. Um, not everyone all the time, but you know, if you gather 200 people together on a Sunday morning, someone is working through an existentially shifting event in their life. Right. Most likely. Um, and I think that that's something that it's good to be aware of. You know, not necessarily to like try to figure out who that person is and cater to them. Like that would be a weird pandery way to preach. Um, but understanding that with with um, with anything we preach on, you know, even the uh, the happy happiest, clappiest, evangelicalist promise of God in Scripture, uh, understand there are people who are going to have a hard time believing it in that moment because of what they're they're dealing with and, and grieving. Sure. I remember um, there was a, a list that we, we learned about in college of uh, stress-inducing events in life. Mm-hmm. You maybe remember. The that. Nelson scale. Yes, that's it. Um, and it was weighted, you know, mm-hmm. so many points for this. And even the positive good things in life cause stress. Like, yep. Got married, stress. Moved, stress. Got a new job, stress. Had a yep. baby, stress. Right, and that kind of piles up on you. It sure does. And so the reality is, is someone may not be coming from a funeral and coming to church on Sunday, but they may have like three or four things going on in their life, uh, empty nesters, right, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and they may not have even identified that, but it causes this stuff. Yeah. So uh, this concept of preaching to the grieving is sometimes very, very obvious, and sometimes it is not obvious at all, mm-hmm. but it's there. Um, well, and I think part of it, too, is is how do we learn how to preach in a way in our grief to share our own process of moving through it yes. without it becoming uh, a counseling session for everyone else that they didn't sign up for? Fair enough. Or, or is it possible to at least have, regardless of whatever topic of Scripture you're, you're addressing in your sermon... Um, is it fair to say that at least there has to be some moments of offering hope, mm, right? Mm. Um, there has to be some moments of of, uh, of bringing people around to the to the promise of the gospel, even though there may be challenging moments in the sermon. Um, so yes, it doesn't need to be a, a counseling session for three people in the midst of a congregation, but at the same time, um, is there a way to offer hope um, in the midst of, of the message? Um, I think I think every Sunday is an op- is an opportunity for pastoral care, mm-hmm. um, and that's not just reserved for the prayer time, or it's not just reserved for uh, the, you know the one on one conversations following the service. I think there's opportunities for pastoral care um, throughout the the time that the congregation is gathered, and that's something that uh, that our friend Paul Reisler says. Um, you know, if you're a, a great preacher, but not great one-on-one in pastoral care, you better figure out how to preach pastorally. 
it's, it's a great word. It's true. Absolutely true. Um, we've had conversation before around the concept of corporate lament. Um, we had an actual podcast. We, we focused entirely mm-hmm. on that. But it feels like this is an opportunity to circle back to that conversation uh, as we talk about grief. Um, how, what are ways that we include corporate lament into the body of our, our of the worship time we have together and how mm-hmm. we do that on a, on a regular basis? Yeah. What are your thoughts around that? How would you uh, suggest that we might address that? Well, I think one of the uh, one of the things to remember about um, the gift of corporate worship is that it's an opportunity for catechesis, um, and one of the ways that we can learn how to do things in a distinctly Christian way is by modeling them in worship. Um, and, you know, we live in a world that gives us all sorts of, um, all sorts of unhealthy, non, uh, non-honorable ways to deal with your pain. Right. Um, and as the church, we have an opportunity and a responsibility to model, uh, more healthy, um, more distinctly Christian ways of doing so. And one of that is uh, is corporate lament. It is um, going back to that that process of being able to uh, direct your frustrations towards God, um, to remind yourself of who God has said that God is, um, and then make the decision to believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's not the world's pattern of griping and complaining and airing their grievances. What is the world's pattern? It's going to Twitter and going on blast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's ghosting people. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the process of lament uh, in in for a Christian it's the opposite of that, right? Like it is leaning into the presence of God saying, you have said, this is what you're like. That's not what I'm experiencing right now, but I believe it. So help me understand what's going on here, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is basically the third section of C.S. Lewis's grief observed. Right. Right. When he starts to make that shift to say, you know, I, I really do believe that you're not a cosmic sadist, but you're an eternal surgeon. But I'm struggling here. <laughs> you know, what do I make of this experience I'm having? Right gotcha. Now? Sure. That's good. Um, corporate lament in worship is an opportunity for folks who are all across the board on the spectrum of grief um, at any given Sunday, on any given Sunday, for folks to to do just that and to model that uh, collectively. Um so my observation of, of grief is uh, it's like labor pains in reverse. Mm. And I'm talking about intense grief. I'm not talking about just low-grade low grief that people live with day to day. But that you know, labor pains start out slow and grow in intensity, uh, whereas grief when a person goes through significant loss is very intense up front and then begins to wane over time. Um, and I've seen people... Well, I mean, I remember when when you know Amy was in labor for each of our three kids, um, she could not control when those labor pains were coming. Yep. Um, and I would say it's you know it's about time for labor pain. And she'd yeah, shut up, you know, <laughs> it's coming. Um, but um, with with grief, I've seen people at funeral homes having a, a smile and a conversation, and all of a sudden this wave of grief would overtake mm-hmm. them. They could not stop it. They could not control it. Yeah. And so. Um, it's just interesting to me that that process of grieving is um, is, is so observable mm. um, unless you're in the midst of it, and then and sometimes it's not. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder what it's like for us to consider in ministry, whether it's preaching, whether it's liturgy, whether it's pastoral care, is uh, to be intentional to help folks um, acknowledge and process and go through their grief um, 
in a way that brings them closer to the reality of God's provision and mm. providence in their life. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's really what this conversation is about today, um, is ministry with the grieving. Um, we'd love to hear from some of our listeners. Uh, if you're if you're listening to this today and it's helpful and you have some things you'd like to to share with us in your own perspective, or you have questions about it, email us at recoveringmethodism at gmail.com. Um, Caleb, anything else you'd add to the to the toolbox today that might be helpful to the conversation? Yeah, I mean, I think especially for pastors having the self-awareness of the grief that they're in the midst of. Um, you know, so I, uh, I have, um, over the years, had uh, friends who are starting at new churches. And... Um, these are churches that have gone through a painful season. Um, and the friend of mine is also coming out of a painful season. And, um, and one of the things that I think is absolutely necessary is being able to acknowledge that with one another and say, you know, we're going to work through our grief and our pain together. Cause if you don't, you're going to quietly silo your grief and your hurt and your pain away and begin projecting that onto the other um, in a way that's really unhealthy and unhelpful. Um, you know, I think about a, a friend of mine now who um, is you know, in, in that sort of space where they are uh, preparing to, to start at a church that's been in a, in, through a rough season and and they've they had a rough time with disaffiliation, and it's just like you know you can either acknowledge that grief that you share and heal together, or you can you know silently suffer and assume the worst about each other. Most likely, mm. that last phrase is interesting. Assume the worst about each other. And uh, is it possible that our uh, unresolved grief um, clouds our thinking? Definitely. And um, has a negative impact on our our faith journey and our relationships with the the people who love us and we're called to love, that we love. Um, So that's an interesting thought for us to think about. And you mentioned the phrase self-awareness, and self-awareness is so critical uh, in ministry in general. what are ways that um, a person could grow in their self-awareness? What are your thoughts around that? I have a few thoughts as well, just thinking. Maybe you could share a little bit about that. Yeah. What has been beneficial for me um, is uh, discipline around uh, pre-bedtime prayer and having a... Uh, a list of reflection questions that I cycle through. Um, they're, they're the reflection questions that uh, Wesley and the Holy Club use together. Um, you know, so there are 21, 22 of them. And, you know, in my, uh, my sort of process for finishing one day and getting ready for the next day, you know, part of that is looking at those questions, um, you know, so that, once every three weeks, I'm having to to ask myself the question, and you know, it's just me and God, so I have no reason to lie about it. Um, you know, am I insisting upon something in which my conscience is uneasy? Mm. Can I be trusted? Am I self justifying, self pitying? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is the Bible living in me? Do I enjoy praying? Right. These these questions um, are a, a really helpful tool for you know n- not getting too far off the tracks. That's good. <laughs> um, and it also you know exposes other things, right? Like if if I'm you know irritable, why? Right. right? Like what am I what am I bottling up and not working through? Um, you know, and how is that impacting other people? Um, you know, so, you know, in my mind, the, 
the thing that has been most beneficial to me is having a consistent evening prayer practice um, consisting of, uh, at least in part, uh, having that time of reflection and confession. Um, and, um, you know, confession, not just of, you know, the, the ways that I recognize I'm falling short, but also confessing the truth of who God is. Gotcha. Um, and I'm sure there are other ways that work for other people, but that's that's what's been beneficial for me. Well, it makes sense that that would be a place where we'd start this conversation in that uh, it puts a disciplined framework around your daily life that mm. um, uh, allows you not to, um, how do I say, uh, amuse yourself at the end of the day, but to muse, mm. right, mm-hmm. and to think um, through and reflect upon, um, you know, your day and and what's going on in your life based on some some really good questions. Um, so that's one thing is is that private devotional practice and following those means of grace. Um, but I also think there's there's value to doing that collectively with a group of people or at least one other like person. Like a band meeting? Like a band meeting. <laughs> yes. Like a band meeting or a class meeting where there are other people yep. that you can bounce those ideas off and have people in your life who, uh, who you trust who can say... Uh, Here's what I observe. Here's what I notice, and here's some thoughts. Or how's that working? How are you how are you working through that? You've talked about this in the past. I mean, that's important. Yeah. So it's not just a solo event here. Um, as important as the solo event is, it's also part of a collective uh, process. Uh, who is the Greek philosopher? Is that Epicurus or Epicletus? One of those Epi guys um, said that that life is less about what happens to you and more about the device by which you view it. That's good. Process. That's good. Um, and you know, we live in a world that puts devices in our pocket that makes it easy to run away from any sort of self-reflection, right? Um, and to you know, entertain ourselves into you know, mind numbness. Sure. Um, so, I mean, from the standpoint of what can get in the way of that. I think a a big piece to to be aware of and to be on the lookout for is, you know, not letting that instantaneous gratification that comes from the twenty four seven three sixty five entertainment mm-hmm. machine um, get in the way of of a life um, in you know moments in your life where you can truly be bare and present with God. Right. The third thing I would add to this conversation, first, first is the, the private practice of devotion, reflection. Uh, secondly, a group of people or at least one other person that can walk alongside of us. But I think it's also important to consider uh, a mentoring, spiritual direction kind of relationship mm-hmm. uh, where someone who has really nothing invested in it uh, except for, you know, that they have... A role that they play in your life, where they can speak uh, truth into your life in a way that is different than a, a friend or a colleague, yeah. um, and so sometimes that looks like a counselor, sometimes it looks like a spiritual director, uh, or some type of mentor that you turn to on a somewhat regular basis to say, um, "Here's been my experience in this. Maybe this is what you're experiencing." Would you agree to that? Certainly. Yeah, I think that would be helpful as well. Um, so. These are all parts of the toolbox conversation today, and I, I think it's helpful uh, to think about ministry with the grieving, with the understanding that everybody's grieving mm-hmm. to some degree. Um, this season, things have been so different since 2020, since COVID. Um, we didn't think this way necessarily four years ago yeah. uh, to a certain degree, um, but there's so much, um, we'll just say societal angst and anxiety that people deal with on a regular basis um, for a variety of reasons. Um, and we're still trying to work our way through it, I think. It's just my opinion. Yep, undoubtedly. Well, this has been a good conversation today. Let's wrap up our time together. Again, if you uh, have any questions or comments, you want to chime in, send us an email, recoveringmethodism at gmail.com. Uh, be sure to like and subscribe and give us a five-star review. review. be much appreciated. Indeed. All right. Have a good day, and uh, we'll catch you next time.
Thank you for listening to the Recovering Methodism podcast. We hope your heart has been strangely warmed. Be sure to like, subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a five-star review. God bless.